about that agency and cyber. We're talking about the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency this hour. It's hired hundreds of people last year, and it plans to hire more in 2023. In fact, CISA is one of the fastest-growing agencies in government. Members of Congress want to make sure the agency keeps up with a growing stack of cybersecurity responsibilities. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And, Justin, let's start with the latest numbers on CISA hiring. Yes, yeah, CISA hired 516 people in fiscal 2022, and it's on track to hire about 600 more in 2023. That's according to Director Jen Easterly, who testified before the House Appropriations Homeland Security Subcommittee this week. DHS's budget overview shows CISA now has about 3,300 full-time equivalent staff in place, so it's on its way from the low 3,000s to the higher 3,000s this year. CISA's cybersecurity division alone is at about 1,200 people and its other divisions like infrastructure security also have people who are responsible for cyber. So that cybersecurity uh, issue obviously has become an urgent one across government and it's a big one for CISA of course too. This comes as lawmakers uh, have expressed some concerns about CISA's budget and authorities kind of outpacing its ability to really meet them. There was also a Homeland Security Inspector General report from earlier this month that found CISO was struggling to retain people and fill open positions. Easterly, though, says CISA is taking advantage of all the authorities that it has at its disposal to hire and retain folks. We are maximizing everything we can do to be more agile, to be more effective, and to drive down those vacancies in our workforce and to keep attrition low, which is about 8%. But you know, not all attrition is regretted. And so there is a natural uh, flow, as you know, from a business world that people should go out and do other things if they're not the right fit for defending the nation. And Justin, you mentioned that recent IG report. And later in this hour, we will have something on that report, but not on the personnel angle. So what were some of the findings from the workforce perspective? Yeah, the report found CISA did not have enough staff to execute its mission. That's a direct quote. And it it also discussed, as I'm sure you'll discuss, CISA responding to solar winds and just not having the capabilities there. And so staffing has been one of those major issues in terms of responding to cyber incidents uh, for CISA. It found the agency was suffering from burnout and high attrition rates. Management at CISA, who the IG interviewed, found, you know, it takes too long for CISA, as it does across government, to hire folks six to 12 months in a lot of cases. And CISA doesn't even have enough hiring managers and support staff to hire people. So even the hiring process is understaffed. And once employees do come on board, they burn out quickly because they're doing multiple jobs and they often leave, which starts to cycle all over again. The IG uh, report had some pretty stark numbers. As of last August, 1,200 of CISA's 3,600 authorized positions were unfilled, so about one-third. And in the cybersecurity division, the vacancy rate was 38% as of last August. An update on that during this week's hearing, Easterly says CISA's hiring initiatives are projected to bring the vacancy rate down to 8% by the end of fiscal 2024. So that would be some pretty big progress if they can pull that off. And this whole idea of burnout, I guess if there's not enough people and you've got too much to do, that's how people get burned out. What are they doing to do that besides hiring and retention? Can they somehow balance the workload better or what? Yeah, I think that's one thing they're looking to do. You know, CISA brought in a new chief people officer, Elizabeth Kolmstetter from NASA last November. Of course, NASA, as as you've been covering, is uh, for 11 years in a row now, ranked number one on the Partnership for Public Services, Best Places to Work in Government. So they're trying to, I guess, bring over some secret sauce there. 
And, you know, Easterly has also tasked the Cyber Advisory Committee with looking at this issue of burnout. Uh, in particular, she asked them to look at the effectiveness of a hybrid and remote workforce because more than half of CIS's staff is remote or hybrid. And that can, you know, obviously be a good thing for recruiting people, but it can also present some challenges. And so Easterly has asked the advisory committee to look at that issue in, in particular. And does CISA have a good handle on where it actually needs all of these people? Well, one area that's uh, going to be growing pretty quickly is the cyber incident reporting uh, staff who will manage CISA's uh, implementation of the new Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act law that was just passed uh, last year. CISA's fiscal 2024 budget request includes $97 million to hire about 100 people to staff out that incident reporting organization. Uh, Easterly says the funding will be used to put both staff and technical infrastructure in place to manage the incident reports. The additional monies we asked for was really about putting the technical infrastructure in place to allow us to be able to receive this massive amount of new reporting, to analyze it, to correlate it, to enrich it, and then to use it to respond, but really to to reduce risk to other sectors in the rest of the nation. And of course, there's lots of cybersecurity vulnerability reports coming from several agencies. The Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center, the DC-3, has its own reporting system, which they are careful to point out is in a different lane than what CISA is reporting on, but you know they're aware of one another. And so the cyber incident reporting regulations, are they following through on what they're supposed to do? It's one thing to gather the reports. Then the question is, you know, now what? Yeah, that's something CISA still has to define as part of this uh, two-year rulemaking process is that they're right in the middle of. So that law passed last March. Easterly says CISA is working to publish a notice of proposed rulemaking by next March in 2024 to kind of lay out some of these different definitions of what information needs to be reported within the 72-hour deadline, who exactly within the critical infrastructure has to report those incidents, and what constitutes a covered cyber incident that needs reporting. Not all cyber incidents necessarily need to go up the chain. Uh, The agency has already held more than two dozen public listening sessions around the country to get some feedback. And so now they're very much in the throes of the rulemaking process as they as they work toward next March. Here's Easterly. We have worked really hard to make this a consultative process. Having come from a highly regulated industry in finance, I am very, very sensitive to not creating chaos when there are all kinds of regulations that are out there. We want to do this in a way that allows us to render assistance to the victim and then drive down risk to the nation. And that's Jen Easterly, again, the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. That's almost one of the better barometers of the general, I don't know, efficiency and health of an agency is how fast it can get rules out that it's tasked with writing. I mean, if you look at, say, the Office of Personnel Management, which has struggled, one of the ways they've struggled over the years is getting rules done in a timely manner. Defense Department, sometimes it takes them two, three years, four, five years even, to get rules to cover what they were tasked to do under a given NDAA. And so that's a pretty good measure, in my view. Yeah, it's certainly another going to be another barometer of just how fast and wide CISA is growing you know, across their operational responsibilities. This rulemaking is really the first one that they've ever had to do. And it's a huge, it's a huge rulemaking, probably the most consequential cyber regulations that have ever been passed into law. And as we've discussed, just hiring people 
and bringing people on board and growing from what was, you know, what, a couple hundred people within the DHS headquarters in, in, in 2017, 2018, to now several thousand about five years later. It's been, it's been a fast journey. And so there's a lot a lot to keep track of, of, of how CISA is growing here. Yeah. And, you know, rulemaking can be a surprise for an agency. They think they've got it all figured out, but then you have the industry feedback and it's kind of like throwing manure to a fan. The blowback can really surprise you. So we'll see how that goes. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look in Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look in Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look in Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you 
recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. 
So Sulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.